This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 106. You ready? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Blanc. Yo, 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 everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. I'm really excited here to learn with me about apartment building investing, the best way in the world to quit your job with real estate. So today, I'm really excited to get into a story for, uh, with Mario Ortiz. He's just a self-made guy, and he's about to quit his job. He could have done so a long time ago, but chose not to. And interestingly, he did it all without syndicating. Even though we talk a lot about syndicating, he just kept rolling one into another and got started in a very, very creative way. And this is what I love about these entrepreneurs, right? And they don't say, oh my gosh, I can't do it. They say, how can I do it? And by his own mission, he was so busy at work that he actually didn't have time to educate himself. So he actually didn't know that you could raise money and syndicate, and he figured out another way. And he did all this while working a demanding job. I mean, the man just made $4 million on his last refinance of this property, all while working full-time. And he's just an amazing example that anyone who says, oh, I can't do this, I work a full-time job, there's example after example of people who have done it, and Mario was one of them. So this is a great example of how you can make literally millions of dollars and quit your job without syndicating. And, you know, clearly he could have gotten there much faster with syndicating, but it's yet another example that you don't have to do it. You just got to be creative. And so I'm really, really excited to get into this interview here with Mario Ortiz. Mario, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Yeah, give us a real quick intro before we get into your story. All right. I am a mechanical engineer for 28 years. I'm currently a project manager and been in the oil industry for that long. Somewhere along the line, maybe 10 years into it, you know how oil goes up and down. This industry is a tough industry sometimes. I decided that in order to survive that and not have to sell the kids to eat, I decided that I needed some extra income and landed in real estate. Started off with houses like everybody else and then eventually got into a little 17-unit apartment complex graduated to a bigger 90-unit apartment complex, and that's a story in itself on how that happened, and then went up to an 180-unit complex, which I own today. I am 50 years old. I'm going to be leaving the oil industry here in a few months, probably July, August timeframe. That's very exciting. So, so you started looking into real estate investing to kind of create some kind of stability for you. And like most of us, we immediately think single family houses. So at the time, what was your plan when you first started getting into real estate? Well, so backing up just a little bit, originally I was trying to find a business that would replace or supplement the income in case of a layoff. And I started off by looking at an oil change business in a street corner, was pretty serious about it. And it was half a million dollars. I was going to take my 401k and put it in there just to get that continuous income in case of a layoff. So I went over there just to vet the place and I got a job for a weekend in that place, changed oil and, and asked a bunch of questions. I was really, was excited when I, when, when I first got there. But by that afternoon, I realized that this was another job that I was going to have to be attending to. There was a cash register there. And if that cash register wasn't attended by me or somebody very trustworthy, that money was going to be a problem. That open sign had to be turned in the open position all the time in order to keep making money. 
And so those were some of the challenges that I found with a business. And at that point is when I decided that I did not want a business that had a cash register on it. And so, so that's where I turned to real estate. That's awesome. So what was your plan with real estate then initially? Uh, so I remember making a calculation and, and, and finding that first house and think, thinking, okay, I am going to need about 20 houses or 25 houses, some, some pretty big number to replace my income. Uh, and, and if I had those houses, then I could I'd survive a, a layoff, say. So that was my initial uh, intent was to have enough money to uh, income to maybe survive a layoff, maybe reduce a little bit, maybe not spend as much, but then at least have income where I didn't have to start selling stuff. Exactly. So you actually bought a few houses. Uh, tell us about that. So I started off with, uh, obviously, with one. And, and that first one was very emotional, very, very uh, stressful. It was, it, there was no, uh, it was ready to rent, ready to, you know, so I just, I just bought the thing. I think I bought, paid $109,000 for it. And part of my contract I put on there that I was going to be renting it prior to closing or, or putting it up for rent prior to closing. The people living there didn't have a problem with it. So I put a sign up and before I knew it, I had it rented before I even bought the place. I think I rented it for like $1,200. So I was, uh, I was netting after all was said and done a couple hundred dollars. And so when I started with that, I said, well, that was pretty easy. You know, I, here I had money in my pocket and I haven't even closed on the thing. So that kind of encouraged me to do some more. And I found another guy selling three houses and I bought those. And, and before I knew it, I had like 10 houses. 10 houses all over Houston was, was pretty challenging, especially with a full-time job. And so I started to realize that there was no way that I was going to be able to do 25, 30 houses in order to achieve my original goal, which was to replace the income. It was just too overwhelming. So I kind of stopped for a while, maybe, maybe a couple of years. I kept it at 10 and I think I sold a couple houses and I was really a little a little discouraged with the whole process because of the work involved and the stability of oil came back again, you know, and I started to get comfortable again. So I kind of just kept it there thinking that I was going to be able to just keep it going with, with what I had and just, you know, keep the job going forever. So, yeah. So you, you, you were a bit discouraged. You took a break. And then what, what happened after that? Like uh, I'm a very restless person. I always have to do something and I have to, uh, you know, playing golf or some other challenge besides just my normal day. And I got bored. I get bored with, with work fairly easily. And so I decided to start looking and I started on LoopNet looking for multifamily because of, of the disparity or the, the I had houses everywhere. I was thinking there's got to be a better way to do this. I got re-encouraged with, with real estate thinking that that was still the way to go a couple of years down the road. I started looking at LoopNet and I found a listing for a 17 unit apartment complex in a, a town called Lamarck, Texas, which is about 10 miles south from me. And so I uh, went to look at it met the owner, uh, who I thought was the owner, and, and made a deal with that person. And then he said, okay, all you have to do now is just go to the bank. The bank has to meet you and, and we'll be on our way. And so I would go to the bank and the, the, and the, own, the true owners are there. What, what had happened is these guys had done a, a sale to this guy, a sale by owner. Right? So they were financing it for him. And then the bank owned the note. So it was two steps down and then I was going to be a third. And so the deal that I had, they said, look, you have no deal. We don't know who you are. We don't want anything to do with you. They were pretty upset at the whole thing because they didn't trust their guy. 
And but once I gave him my resume, I told him, look, this is what I do for a living. I manage large projects, multi-million dollar projects. This is the money that I have. The the bank and the true owners huddled up. They already wanted to get rid of the guy. So the bank, which is a local bank, gave me a sweetheart deal. I think I put I ended up putting down like 12 percent on that property and I was able to get in and they got and it was me directly with the bank. I didn't make a lot of money in that deal, but what it did is establish a relationship with a, a local bank. So that was my first deal in multifamily. And that's and, and, that's, a, that's interesting. Why do you think they were taking you seriously at the time? Because you hadn't you didn't have a track record, right? And no, I think looking back at it, what happened is they were so disgruntled with the with with the guy that had it that they were willing to do anything to get out of it with that guy. And so I, I, I was just at the right place at the right time. And, and they really were dissatisfied with the performance of that other person that they just wanted to get out of that whole mess. So that's amazing. That's amazing. So they got you into this thing and they, they were so motivated to get, to get them out and got you into this thing. And so for very, very little down, all of a sudden you owned this deal. And you said that you, you didn't make a lot of money, but in hindsight, that deal was still uh, very, very valuable to you. Why, why was that, that first deal so valuable to you? A couple of things. So... Uh, the most important thing is I had the opportunity to develop a relationship with a bank. And, and that bank, which I still have today, has been by my side throughout all, all the other dealings that I've had because I established a track record with them at that point. Now, I made a little bit of money and it was back when uh, Katrina hit through here. And so rents were really elevated because Apartment prices went up quite a bit. So it was easy to make money on that 17 unit. Everybody had vouchers. Everybody had vouchers being, you know, the, the government assistance. But they were paying, the, they were overpaying for two bedroom apartments. So I was making a lot of money. The complex needed some repairs. So I put some money into it. And, and it, 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 what it did is it, I was just me. So it was very difficult, but still a lot better than the houses. But it was just me. I had no maintenance man. I had a part-time manager that lived on property. I think I gave her two or $300 a break on rent to collect rent. But toilets, air conditioners, everything like that, I, I handled. And I have a little bit of background with that, so it was a lot easier. I, I do a little bit of AC work. I'm a certified pest control locator. So I got other little things that kind of helped through that. But I learned a lot about managing property, self-managing that one really, really uh, cut my teeth. So, all right, so that first one, you said you didn't, you didn't make a lot of money. Now, looking back on it, and obviously you're much more experienced now, there's a good chance you probably wouldn't do that deal again because you're, gonna, you're looking for higher returns. But what is, your, what is your counsel, someone in your shoes looking at a deal, and it's not, it's not a screaming you know, home run, but maybe it's a base hit or maybe in something less than that. Do you think it's a good idea for someone to go ahead with a deal like that, or would you advise someone really to wait longer until the deal's better? No, I, I mean, I, I think that one of the best things to do is really to start. If you don't start, obviously, you'll never get there, right? And I'm almost thinking at this point that any deal, even if it's a break-even deal, is, is so important as long as you get in and get started because it, it changes you in a way that gives you some confidence and you understand the basics. I recently, uh, I've been mentoring this couple and in, in doing some rehabs and some houses. And we went, my wife and I went to go visit the rehab this weekend. And the guy was really nervous about what was going on. And he was afraid that he was only going to make, you know, 20,000 or 30,000, some, some number like that. And, I'm, and I looked at him, I said, you, do you, do you hear what you're saying? You, I mean, you, 
your, your 401k probably swings that much on a weekly basis and you're worried about 5,000 bucks here and there. The biggest value that you have here that you're gaining of this thing is the experience. The next one you do is going to be much, much better and so on and so forth. You're in the game, as they say. So, no, absolutely. If, there, if there's an opportunity to do one, I would encourage anybody to jump in and do it. The other question I have is you, you decided to self-manage. Now, normally we advise people not to do that. Number one, you know, because it's not your, the best use of your time. Number two, there's someone else can probably do it better than you. And now, why at the time did you decide to self-manage? What was behind that? So it, it was probably more ignorance than anything. Uh, I am a, I'm a very hands-on guy. I, like I mentioned, I do, I do refrigeration. And, you know, I, I know how to use a hammer and, and, and all that stuff. And so I was so used to doing it with the houses that it was just a natural progression. I'm also very cognizant of bottom line. And so I didn't want to spend any money on, on anybody else doing it. And I'm very glad I did it because I got to learn leases and eviction processes and, and then multifamily law around in Texas and those kind of things. It was very, very beneficial for me to do that. Uh, would I do the same again? Probably not. But, but I continued that same philosophy for a couple more deals before I, before I switched over. Yeah, fair enough. Now, so this first deal then was maybe a base hit at best. It got you into the door, into the game, and you started building a relationship with this one bank. And what, what happened after that? What, what happened after that first deal? So, so I'm going to refer to some notes. So the timing back then, if, if, and you probably will notice these dates, is about 2009, 2010 was when I had this deal. And everything was imploding back then. People were losing their assets. So I started looking again, right? And and I found this one deal down the road, across almost across the street from this, from this bank that, that I was telling you, in Texas City, Texas. And it was a 90-unit deal that was in a receivership. It's so it's it's similar to bankruptcy, but it's they don't go through the, the bankruptcy process. They it's a court ordered uh, process to liquidate the property, and they wanted uh, like fourteen thousand dollars a door, which a ninety unit. I think it cost one point two million, somewhere in that range, one point two six. But I didn't have any money. I had it all tied into this property. So I went to the bank again and I said, "Look, I'm I'm interested in this deal, but I don't have any money. So what do I do?" I took my property, the 17 unit, I put it on LoopNet and decided to throw it out there as a uh, owner finance. And I checked with my bank and they were fine with it. I got a person to go in there and got a little bit. Uh, I got all of my money back and then some. Of course, I sold the property. I think I got $100,000. I pulled out my 401k and I was all in in this thing. So all of my life savings at that time, I guess it was about 15 years of, of saving that I put into this property and, and I put a bid in, full price bid. And next thing I know, I got it. And that was a shocker because there's all my life savings going into a project that I, I wasn't even sure that I, that I could handle. 90 units with a full-time job. That's amazing. And this was from the same bank of the first deal? They, no, they did not have this. They weren't the ones that had the property. It was a listing from an agent. Right. So got it. So you you came across this 90 unit and you had to get creative because you had none of your own money. Now, a lot of times one would say, well, then, you know, Mario, start raising it. And did you had right. you considered raising the money? Did you feel or did you not know it was possible? And obviously you were very creative in how you came across this. I'm just, right. I'm just wondering whether you had thought about or even about syndicating or raising the money for it. To be honest with you, I didn't even know that process existed. 
remember I was really busy doing my normal job that I didn't have an opportunity to do the, all the networking. So it was all just on me to come up with the money. I didn't have a, uh, a resource or a mentor that would tell me, Hey, why don't you consider this? So it was all on me. It's amazing. It's almost like you I made it. Know. It's like it's almost like you made it harder for yourself not to raise money, but nevertheless, you didn't let that stop you. I find that fascinating, Mario. So you said, "My gosh, I'm going to sell this thing, and not only that, I'm going to sell or finance it, put a little money in my pocket, and then you know borrow from her 401k, and right. uh, and that's how you got into this 90 unit." So. That's that's pretty cool, right? Because most people say, "Oh, I can't do this. Let me uh, let me let yeah, me work yeah, yeah. A, let me work a few years, save some more money, and then I'll go into the next one." You're like, "How can I do this?" Right. You you say I put a little money in my pocket. I didn't. I took all that money and put it into this other deal. And and this this other deal. And I don't know if you're familiar with receiverships. I don't see that many of them. Uh, it, everything is court controlled. Every step has court controlled. And so I put my bid in in May, and I didn't close until October. And all those months were very, very painful from a stress standpoint because I don't, it's a huge property. It's, I, had, I was going to take on a million dollar debt against myself. I have a, a family. Uh, I'm try, I was trying to do the opposite. I was trying to get out of debt and trying to increase my income. And here I am taking all my money and put it in something else. So it's very stressful. Lucky for me, I had a very supportive wife that was behind me. She trusted me. I don't know why, but she trusted me to do the right thing. And when we closed in, I think it was late October of 2012, I believe, or something like that. 20, 2011, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2011, we closed on that deal, self-managed it, 90 <laughs> units. I personally hired a lady that was inexperienced in apartment rentals. She was into the uh, storage unit arena. She came over here and we spent many nights running that place, her and I, and, and, and we made it successful. We, we turned it around. We had drug dealers and all other undesirables in there, and we got rid of all that. I learned a lot, went through several management programs, the uh, software. Some, most of them were, were, were bad, and we finally landed on one that was good, but we, we made it work. And it sounds like that deal turned out okay. It turned fantastic. You know, if I could point to a deal that 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 was the one, you know, the one changing thing, it was a 17 unit because it got me into the game. But the one that actually kind of changed my life was this other one, the, the 90 unit, because 18 months later, you have to put it in perspective. If you look back now and you go, wow, you should have kept it, you know, because they're worth, worth a lot more. But 18 months later, that property it was now humming at 92%. I got a guy come in and offered me a little over a million dollars more than what I had, than what I had bought it for. So I bought it for, I bought it for 1.2. I got an offer for 2.4 and I sold it. That is crazy. So I, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I can see how that might have changed your, your life after that. Now, but you, you still, even after that, you stayed in a job, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Kept, kept the job. Yep. Exactly. All right. So you're still you're still working. This is going on kind of on the side, which is just astounding. And it, you're, you're making, I guess, some mistakes. You're still no, self-managing a little bit with the help of this, with this person, right? And then so this was now in 2011. So what happened after that? Did you do any more deals or, or was that the last one? 
So let me just mention one other thing is because I had a full-time job, I had to be creative in developing systems that allowed me not to be there, right? So for instance, I had uh, an app that I could do payroll on my phone. It would take me about five minutes. I had a maintenance man and I had the manager and occasional cleaning lady. And, and those three people were my employees. So I, I didn't know anything about withholdings. I didn't know anything about a federal tax or any of that. So I, I got an app and the phone and I had to develop systems to allow me to operate without my presence. But when we sold it, when I sold it, I kind of threw a party for a couple of years. I, I bought a Porsche and we went out, you know, golf uh, a lot. And my wife and I traveled, did that for a couple of years and, and, and found myself a little empty again, missing the days of, of managing that property. I, I tried to do a 1031 exchange, but again, my inexperience hit me again. When, when, when I sold that property, I went looking and prices in Houston were kind of creeping up quite a bit. So it took me to Dallas. I found a property out there for 3.1. It was a Brentwood apartment, $3.1 million, and I lost it. And that's what, what was the asking price. I offered 2.8. I remember my wife and I were in the Florida Keys and the lady calls says, hey, are you sure you had sort of last number? And I was pretty cocky. And I said, yeah. I know you're not going to sell it for, any, for anything else. 2.8 is my number. Remember, this is a 180-unit property, right? And I'm offering wow. 2.8. It almost sounds ridiculous. But I didn't get it. I didn't get it. Somebody else got it for 3.1. And so I just farted around for a couple of years. And then I started looking again. And I went back to Dallas because prices here, I thought, were, were pretty high in Houston. And a realtor that I had made a relationship with said, hey, I'm trying to get a property out in Fort Worth, it's called Brentwood, and but I can't get the listing, and they're trying to sell it. And I and I said, man, I remember that name, and looked back and looked at, it, and that was the same property that I had been beat on last time. So I lost my ten thirty one back then. I lost a couple hundred thousand dollars, but now it was back up. So I reached the owner directly, and it took a long time. They were facing, they held it for two years, and they were facing a lot of problems. They were facing bankruptcy and, and all kinds of stuff. So they were ready to get rid of it. Couldn't get it financed by anybody. My local bank was very hesitant because all the stuff they did was here in Houston. He wouldn't do it. I started looking at, at hard money and it was very expensive. I, I was very afraid of doing it. I finally went down to the bank here in Texas City. I grabbed the president of the bank, put him on an airplane, took him down to Dallas and said, look, this is what you're investing. And once he saw the deal, he was ready to sign the paper. And so he lent me the money again, the guy from here. I got the deal for 3.65. That was in September. Four, we closed September 14th of 2015. That is about a little over $20,000 a door. So in September of 2015, to get 180 units for 20 a door is just, it was pretty good. We bought it really good to begin with. Wow. That's amazing. And so what happened with that property once you bought it? So that property was very challenging. I pretty much took all the money that I had, which was about a, the, the million that I had made over there and put it not, not completely into the property, but I put it in the bank so that I had access to it. Uh, the bank lent me some money. So they basically financed $3 million. So I, I had to come up with six fifty, which is what I did. And then I had the remaining money in there for operating expenses. When I first got it for about, I'm going to say about eight months, I was losing about $20,000 a month. After about six months, I started calculating how long it would take before I would lose the property and, and try to come up with a strategy to sell it before I lost it. 
but I was slowly working it. It was very, very bad tenants. The economic occupancy was probably around 65 and the physical was 85. So it was very, very deceiving. The physical versus the versus the economic. Did you and, know and, and that so going in, Mario? Did you no, no. What they were doing is they were actually physically putting money in the bank themselves to try to make it seem like they were having the income. So they were they were putting money into the into, into the bank account. So when I saw the bank account, it showed that they had the income. So, so you actually you actually during due diligence you actually verified income like you're supposed to, and it turns out uh, that it was it was fake income in the bank statements. Yeah, so they, I, I, you know, you, you get the bank, the bank statements, and then they were showing the income, and so you, the, the other problem, so there was a couple of things. They had very bad records to, to boot, right? So, so it was very difficult to track a lot of this stuff, and so a lot of people walked away from this deal because of that. But I knew there was value there, and so I took the risk anyways. I knew that there wasn't, they weren't completely open with everything, but I thought, hey, the income's there. That's the most important thing. I can control the expenses, and I can make it work. Well, my fundamental premise that the income was there was wrong. Hmm. Right. Is that something that you would do again or would you do something differently in that regard? I would do something different. One of the things that I, that I should have caught and maybe I was too enamored with the deal that I, I kind of ignored it. Some of the entries were from deposits were round numbers, right? They were like $2,500, $3,000 deposits. I don't know. Maybe this is just me, but when we make deposits, we make deposits daily because we have a local machine there where we deposit on site. Every deposit that we have rarely has zeros behind it. It's always got some weird quantity behind it. Very rare do we do we deposit, you know, five thousand dollars. So that was a telltale, and that that I should have caught, but I didn't. Yeah. So when you when you saw that. You you felt something was not right. I did. I kind of I kind of I, I remember seeing it, but kind of ignored it, and I got blinded by the deal a little bit. You know, I was I was I was really like I said earlier, I was enamored by the deal, and I thought, okay, well, yeah, it, it's going to work. You know, I I kept convincing myself that it was going to work, so I should have checked it. But you know what, though, I think I would have still done it, knowing now what I know then. I think I would have still done it because it's been a success story. Well, it has. And so, so you got into this and you got a little bit of a surprise there. How did you turn it around and you know, what happened once you did? So one of the things that, that is very important that I think the listeners should understand that if you're going to go into a deal like that, you better have a lot of cash reserves, especially if there's some unknown and it's underperforming. I had around $400,000 there and it was very important to have that because it kind of gives you some time to get through it. Like I mentioned before, I have a full-time job and I have a very good job. So I didn't need the money from the property to support you know, my family or anything. So I wasn't touching any of the money that was being generated or any of the rents. I didn't require it. So every nickel that came out of that was getting put back into the, to the apartment complex. Some of the things that we were doing is, first of all, we had to get rid of all the people that weren't paying. And that was a, a lot of people. Well, I was expecting maybe, maybe a 10% of, of people, maybe 20% of people. And every time you get somebody out of an apartment, you have to clean that apartment up. So you want to keep the people that are there. That way you don't have to invest in those, in those apartments. Well, it turned out we had to get rid of about 65 or 70% of the people. I was not prepared, well, not mentally prepared to go through so many units and invest that amount of money. So my rehab really took a lot longer since I was 
self-funding it. And I was just counting on the income that was generating from this place. It took a long time to get through most of the units. So it'll be three years this coming September. And I can tell you, we probably still have like two or three down units today. So Yeah. And are you still self-managing at this, Mario, or did you switch to a management company? The lady that was helping me in Texas City, we uh, we became really close friends. She's a friend of the family, and, and, and she moved to Dallas to follow the property. She became almost my business partner, a non-equity business partner, if you will. So she was over there, and we felt like we knew... She calls herself a scrapper. I mean, we I, I, I'd go around on weekends here in Houston and, and, and with my trailer looking for uh, for old AC units and refrigerators and things like that. Old meaning, you know, working. But and, and I'd load them up on the trailer and I'd drive them out there, saving a lot of money from that perspective, getting people that were, were really competitive in pricing. I mean, we were really, really trying to not cut corners, but really cut costs. So we felt that together, her being over there and me here, we could really reduce the operating cost. Here recently, we've decided that because of the appreciation of the property, because we are refinancing, pulling a bunch of money out, we're going to, we're actively looking, we've got a couple offers out on some property that we're now not going to be able to do that anymore. I don't want to start a management company. So what we're doing, we, we, we actually uh, engage the management company to run the complex now. So you, you got a little bit lucky with this lady, right? It could have gone easily the other way. And, and the reason I know that is because we love buying from people who are self-managing their properties and who are struggling because of it. And so this one was definitely a gem that you found. And, and because of that, you did very well. So that's no. outstanding. Now, you said you're yeah, refinancing no, yeah. you're financing right now. Can you talk more about the valuations and, and what, what that means for you? Yeah. So, so, so this property has, we survived managing through the time. And luckily, the, the values of Fort Worth have just skyrocketed. Like I mentioned earlier, we paid $3.6 million for it, which at the time, I think I bought very well because about a month into it, somebody called and offered me $5 million and I was tempted to do it, but it was too early. I hadn't felt the complete pain yet. I wasn't ready to sell. About a year into it, I was really getting worried. So I called up a broker. I asked him what he thought my value was and he, he was saying, yeah, I think it's about six and a half or seven, somewhere in there. And I was like, all right, well... I can probably hold on. And then I started hearing rumors that properties across the street were selling for 50000 a door. And, and I just couldn't believe it. And so and then all the phone calls started to come in from investors asking if I wanted to sell. And the number just kept going up. It seemed like monthly the property offers would go up by half a million. We finally decided that it was probably best because of the 1031 exchange problem being when you sell, you have uh, an opportunity to reinvest in another property using the, the 1031 tax code, which postpones your tax payment. But you only have a certain amount of time. And w- with the prices the way they were, we thought that we, we were going to have a hard time finding a replacement property, identifying a replacement property. So then we said, OK, let's not do that. Let's refinance. Just got an evaluation done on the property here about a month ago. And I think it appraised for 10.9. Wow. 10.9 million. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, quite a bit of difference. It's about $7 million equity in, in two years. No, that's, that's outstanding. So nice job. Now, you know, so let's, let's, you're really a, a creative guy and you're, you've made this thing work rolling one into, into another. 
But let's play a little bit of a hypothetical on this one. A lot of it worked because of the appreciation of the market okay. as well. And I think you recognize that. What do you think would have been the impact had it not been appreciated like that? You would have maybe not been able to sell, refinance, pull cash out. What would you have done then? Would you have waited until you were able to do that? You have maybe thought about raising money or, or maybe something else? No. I, so the, the 180 unit complex generates, in my mind, a very good income. And so the plan would have been to sit on it and just keep improving it and start making a monthly check off of it and make a living from it. I mean, it's, I don't have any partners. It's just me. So 180 units can easily generate twenty five, thirty thousand dollars a month in, in profit and, and and that would have been plenty for me, I think, at that point. Yeah, so in other words, there was no one you were saying there's no one pointing a gun at your head that said that you had to refinance, but because you got these you got these ridiculous uh, offers, it kind of raised your awareness that you could do that. Uh, otherwise you would just right. you would just hold on to it. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's equity that's sitting there that's really not doing anything. And, and that was the only motivator. Had it, didn't, if it didn't have equity, then yeah, I would have just kept operating it and trying to improve it. Yeah. So what's your plan now moving forward? I've been listening to you a lot and, and, and similar podcasts like this, and everybody's doing syndication seems that way. But, you know, I'm, I'm still, it just seems like it personally, and I'm sure it works for a lot of people, it just, it just seems like a bigger problem than what I need. When I refinance this thing, like I mentioned, it's evaluated at 10.9 million and I owe three. So they're giving me a 70%, 75% LTV. And so I'm pulling out a lot of cash. When I hear some of the syndicators talking about raising money, they're talking about raising a million, two million. I don't have that problem because I'll have that cash and I don't have to deal with the syndication thing. Obviously, I won't be pulling the money out. Uh, no, I won't put it in the bank but I'll have access to it to, to spend it. And so I am actively looking for properties in the 10 to $15 million range, pretty much anywhere in Texas. I'm, I'm still a little shy. Again, uh, like you mentioned earlier, I'm not the most savvy person when it comes to, to, to these things. So that's what I'm lacking because of my full-time job. I don't have the opportunity to network as much. So I'm doing it kind of all on my own. These podcasts really helped me because I really learned a lot and I continue to learn. Probably need to get more active in that. But my intent now is to take that, the proceeds from the refi and go buy another property still on my own. Yeah. You know, I, obviously we, we, we teach, you know, preach syndication, right? Because it's a, it's a great way to, to get into larger deals faster. But despite all that, you made this thing work and you're just smartly rolling one into, into another and it's worked very, very well for, for you. And, you know, you're going to keep doing that until I guess it stops working. But it's, it's yet an example of, and I would almost say like, you, you weren't even aware that you could do this. If you have been aware, you know, who knows what you would have done, right? <laughs> who knows where you, you're right, going to be right, now. Right. And I'm not saying your approach is wrong at all. I think, like I said, you're, you're created like so many entrepreneurs and you're just kind of making it work. And it's just an example of how you can build a, a massive business, quit your job, even without syndication with the multifamily stuff. I, I don't know any other business where you can keep just rolling stuff from one into another and achieve that kind of scale. Absolutely. No, I agree. And it's a, in the process. I mean, I'm learning stuff, obviously. It's all never, never, never can stop learning, but it did help that, that, that the thing appreciated so much, but the difference was I was ready to buy. I was there available to buy. And if you're not in that mindset, then you'll just see it go by. Right. They say that, that opportunities of a lifetime, I don't know where I heard it. Opportunities of a lifetime come about once a month in front of you. 
is a little counterintuitive, but that's true. If you're not looking for the for the opportunity, you'll never see it. I was looking for it and I found it. Yeah, that's that's awesome. That's awesome. So it seems to me like you're almost ready to quit your job, but it's psychologically a major step because even though if you have the cash flow coming in from your apartments, just the idea of leaving your security blanket is probably a major challenge. What's that like for you? Being in corporate America for 28 years really does something to your psyche. I have I've done well. I mean, I'm a, I'm a project manager. I lead a group of engineers doing multi-million dollar projects in the oil industry. So in a way, it's been fun, right? I mean, I've, I've had a good time. And, and, and so there's that. There's uh, the, the perceived benefits of, of working for a corporation, the health benefits, the 401ks, the bonuses, the, the social interaction with people, having the availability to, to go down the hall and, and, and talk to people that are similar minded people. All those things come into play when I, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to have that. I'm going to be sitting here in my living room uh, or in my office, home office. And, and if I want to go have a intellectual conversation with somebody, I'll go talk to a dog or whoever, right? Uh, if, if, if the wife isn't around, it's been psychologically been a challenge, but I feel that once you get past that, then at some point you say, okay, what am I, what am I working for? What, when is the right time to leave? And when you come to terms with all that and you determine that you really don't need to be working anymore and you can be doing other things, then uh, it's time to go. And my time is, is, is right around the corner. Now, what do you think you would do, do with yourself? Imagine fast forward to three or six months, all of a sudden it's your last day of work. What do you think? <laughs> how do you think your life might be different? I've really, really thought about that a lot. I keep a journal uh, and uh, I've gone through there and I framed my day. And, and what it would look like. And I'm telling you, it's an exciting day. It's an exciting week and an exciting, exciting life. So part of it, of course, includes running the business because I love, I love the apartment business. And another big chunk of that is spending time with my wife, traveling, taking care of myself, do a little more exercising, uh, doing other, other things, traveling some with my wife and my kids. So I'm excited about it. Again, it's a psychological break, right, that you have to get past. But no, it's, it's, it, on paper, it looks fantastic. Yeah, so you've already started thinking about it, which, which is cool. That's uh, really cool. I think it's going to be amazing, you know, when you're home at two o'clock in the afternoon, and you're like, what is next for me? You know, and that's just a really, really exciting, <laughs> exciting time. So Congratulations on that. What's kind of your parting guidance for for someone who wants to kind of get into this business and kind of do what what you've done? What what would you advise them? So, and and you know, other people say the same thing, but uh, I can't stress enough how important it is to actually do something. Right, the hardest part of doing this thing is actually physically pushing yourself off the couch and going out the door and going looking at houses. If you can start with houses or multifamily or whatever it is. That seems to be the most difficult thing. People just can't get started because maybe they don't know how. But if you find a mentor or, or, or you, you want to talk to somebody, help, you know, you can talk to anybody. You can call me if you want to for what it's worth. But physically starting is, so, is much more important than the size or quality of the deal. Because once you get it, then you start rolling that, that, that snowball. It's a little snowball at first, but before you know it, you're going to look around and go, what in the world happened to me? How did I get here? Because something fantastic happened. But you got to get started. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. That's awesome. So, Mario, what's a great way for people to get a hold of you if they want to? So, uh, all I got is my email. And if they want to get a hold of me and ask more questions or, 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 or just talk real estate, they can, they can email me at M-O-R-T-I-Z, 
9991 at yahoo.com. That is awesome. Mortis9991 at yahoo.com. That's fantastic. Mario, thank you so much for sharing your journey and your experience with us. No, I appreciate you, Michael. Thanks for all the great things you're doing. And and thanks for for, for letting me be on your podcast. So I don't know about you, but there's several key lessons that I learned from my conversation with Mario. So here they are kind of in no particular order. But one thing first is that your first deal doesn't have to be a home run. And now I know I've talked a lot about the the deal desk where people can bring us deals and, you know, we raise the money for them. Because we have this deal flow, we can be a little pickier and we and our investors expect a high level of return. But that doesn't mean that you need to do a deal with huge return because a lot of it is based on your investors. So, for example, if you're doing a friends and family investors, they are tickled pink if you can give them the 10 to 12 percent return. On the other hand, our investors who are now sophisticated, maybe have invested in their 10th deal, they're expecting upwards of 15 to 20 percent returns. So we can't bring them a deal with 12 percent return because they're not willing to invest in that because they also have higher deal flow as well. So what I'm saying is, uh, number one, you don't need to have huge returns on your first deal. It really depends on, on your investors a lot. And the other thing also is that your first deal is so valuable. As Mario explains, it kind of sets everything up. So even if your first deal isn't a home run, it's just a base hit, it may be a deal worth doing. So just because I wouldn't do that deal doesn't mean that you should not do that deal. Does that make sense? So your criteria are going to be different than my criteria or the next guy's criteria. What I'm saying is that the money you make on that first deal isn't the number one thing. Okay, The number one thing is your first deal. You just got to make sure you still buy right and it's a good deal. You're not going to lose your shirt or lose money on it. Uh, Always take care of investors first. What I'm saying is maybe pay yourself a little less, okay, just to get into a deal if you have to. And and a lot of entrepreneurs have done that, especially when they partner with their investors or somebody else. They say, look, you know, I'm going to give you the majority of this thing. And you might look at it and go, why is that guy giving up so much of their deal? But really, that's so smart, okay, because now they're in their first deal. So on your first deal, don't pay too much attention about how much you're getting paid. Think of it more as this now triggers the law of the first deal, which says that once you do a multifamily deal of any size, you'll quit your job in the next two or three years. Okay, that's what that is. That's the value of that first deal. And that's exactly what Mario did as well. Uh, So keep that in mind. And then also be creative. When you see something, don't say, oh, I can't do that. Ask instead, how can I do this? And Mario was so busy with his full-time job, he didn't even actually go to a summer or educate himself. He just kind of started doing stuff. He didn't even know you could raise money, which is amazing to me. And a lot of you guys listening to this stuff, oh my gosh, you got to raise money, right? You got to raise money. You accelerate everything. He didn't. Nevertheless, he figured out a way to do it. And he kept doing it and doing it and doing it and rolling stuff over. So you got to be creative. You know, he sold one on a seller on a seller financing and then borrowed from his 401k. Oh my goodness, right? Uh, there's probably better ways to maybe do that, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, you figured out how to do it. So be creative. The third thing he said is keep reserves. And this is so critical. I see a lot of people making mistakes. I almost made that mistake with my first deal. And, uh, and I, I did have some reserves, but it wasn't enough. So keep some reserves in there. You know, our, our rule of thumb normally is if you're being told by the broker the the property is in great shape, there's no deferred maintenance, then then calculate $1,000 per unit in reserves, plus have a single month's income in reserves as well. Add those two numbers together, and that's how much money you should have in, in the bank at closing. That will give you a relatively good cushion. If you're using investors, hey, heck, after 12 months, you're not using it, well, then return the money back to the investors. Okay, but what's absolutely 
a nightmare is if you do something that Mario describes where you get in, into something and, and there's some misrepresentation even involved, right? So he actually does all the right things in due diligence. And it turns out that the income was actually fabricated. My goodness, that's, that is something. You did everything right. And at the end of the day, you're left holding the bag. So he didn't know that. There's nothing he could have done to figure that out. But he had the reserve to write it out. And, 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 and he did write it out and now pulled $4 million of cash-free refinance money out of that. So just keep reserves. Again, you can always return if you don't need it. Another one is full-time job. I hear so many people saying, I don't have the time for this. This is unbelievable to me. Uh, and Mario is a great example for that. He's a, he has a very high-paid job, and it's very demanding. He talked about this, and he just f makes it a priority. He says, look, I'm not, I don't want to be working this job for the rest of my life. I want to be out of here in two, three years or whatever the time frame be. And, and this is now six months. And he just makes it a priority. So you might have to watch less TV, okay? Uh, you might have to do stuff on, on the weekends when maybe you're just lounging around the house, uh, not doing much. So you have to make it a priority. But this is yet another example of why a full-time job is not an excuse. And I will tell you that 100% of people that have been successful in this business all started with full-time jobs. So that is not an excuse at all. And the other thing he said at the end is do something. The lesson is do something. Just something. And, and some people think, you know, they talk about taking massive action. And it's not true at all. You don't need to take massive action. You need to take little action. And that's what Mario did and what he, what he recommends is just do something. What happens is when you do something, you start building up momentum, the snowball effect. So I always like to say, just do the next three things. Write down what you know are the next three things you should be doing. Everybody knows that. It could be reading a book, going to a seminar, talking to someone, whatever the next three things, write it down and just do it. Cross them off your list, write the next three down and do that. Just do something. Start small and do it every single day. So again, amazing that he did all this stuff with without raising money. But for everyone else on the show, I recommend that you do. And the next first step, if you haven't done so already, is to download my free ebook. It's actually called the secret to raising money to buy your first apartment building deal. And that's all on themichaelblank.com forward slash ebook. So if you haven't done so, just download that and read it and get you going. All right, guys, if you love the show, leave me a review on iTunes. I love reading those as well. And uh, so anyway, I hope you found that inspiring. And when I say inspiring, something that, that triggers you into action. So if you're not sure about multifamily yet, you're thinking real estate or something, if you're a passive investor or you want to raise money for syndicators like me, just educate yourself. Just go to themichaelblank.com, look at our stuff. And uh, if multifamily is the right thing for you, then by all means, invest in your education. And I'm happy to help you with that. But the biggest thing is I want to inspire you to, to take a closer look at multifamily because, in fact, you can quit your job with multifamily. It's really the most effective job. The most people that I have come in contact with, 98% of people who have quit their jobs have quietly done it with apartment buildings, though the majority of them get started with single family houses. And if you ask them what they wish they would have done different, they would have skipped the entire single family house thing and gone right in apartments. And the surprising thing is you can do it without any prior experience and without any cash. So that's kind of my message to you guys listening here. And I hope this inspired you to take some action. Appreciate you guys. See you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.